We're going to jump straight into scripture this morning, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I'm going to read a section of scripture a little bit more than we normally read, just to set the context, set the tone for this morning. So this is week three of Advent, Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, yeah, right. How, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. Apparently, Zechariah has been married for long enough to know not to call his wife an, an old woman. He just said, uh, well along in years. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are old. They are seasoned. They are... uh, They have no no children, but they have lived a righteous life. They have lived a faithful life to God. And yet, even though they walked with God, they had this unfulfilled dream, this unfulfilled desire. And in fact, it's a dream that is passed beyond possibility because they're old. You just don't don't have children when when you're old and, and they've done everything right, but they do not have the one thing, the one thing that their hearts have longed for. They do not have a child. And and so their lives are marked by fruitlessness and barrenness. And where there should be something good, there is a void, there is there is emptiness. And I wonder, what about your story? 
Like this third Sunday of Advent, is there a place of barrenness or fruitlessness in your life? And maybe, maybe you can relate with Elizabeth and Zechariah on a personal level. Maybe, uh, maybe you have desired a child but have not been able to have a child. Maybe, maybe you've lost a child in, in pregnancy. And so as, as I read this story, like you are feeling all the emotions that they felt. And I think this idea of barrenness goes beyond just the idea of not having a child. It, it goes into other areas of our lives as well. Any, any place where we expected fruitfulness, but where there was not fruitfulness, it is a barren place. It's a place of barrenness. And we, we expected something to happen. Hasn't happened. We know this should be a place occupied with something good, but it stands there empty. And, and we, have walked, we have walked with God. You have walked with God. You have loved your neighbor. You have loved God. You have fought for justice. Uh, and, and still, and, and you, you, you pray and you give God thanks. And, and then you also pray, God, when? God, when will you do something? When will you come into my barrenness? When will you come into this, this place where I thought there was going to be something good? I thought this was going to look differently than it looks now. And so we pray, God, when? When are you going to move? And, you know, we... We were not made for emptiness. Our, our first parents in the garden, God, he blessed them, scripture says. And then he said, be fruitful. Be fruitful and, and multiply. And, and God didn't create us to be empty. He didn't create us for barrenness. And so when, when we feel that in our lives, it's like we have this, this ancient longing, this ancient, like, yeah, this isn't right. This, this isn't right. And, and for Elizabeth, her emptiness, like it, it was a disgrace, like that's, that's the way she, she felt it. She says that when, once she was with child, she says, he has taken away my disgrace. He's taken away my disgrace because she must have felt that there, there was some type of disgrace uh, upon her. And when our, you know, when our lives aren't working like God intends, we can feel like uh, it's an insult to us or even, even shameful. Like, God, I know you set my marriage up for flourishing, but, but it's not, and God, it hurts. God, I know you, you set it up for us to have children, but we haven't had children, and God, it, it hurts. And, and God, I gave, I gave everything to this job. I gave everything to this endeavor, this business endeavor, endeavor and, and now there's nothing to show for it. And, and then we begin to have these feelings, like right when these places of barrenness and areas of our lives that aren't going well, we begin to, and we begin to feel shame over that? Like, like there's something wrong with, with us? Uh, like, you know, yeah, people are going to say, or, or people, maybe they told you, like, or they warned you, don't, don't do that because, you, you know, you'll fail. And then, and then you did fail. And, and then it didn't come through. And you're like, oh man, what are they going to say now? What are they going to say now? Barrenness in the Old Testament, it was a, a picture of life not working out as God intended that's what barrenness represented, like life, not as God wanted. And in the wilderness, uh, you remember the, the story of the, the children of Israel? They were in captivity and, and Moses and the, the, the 10 plagues and God delivers them through the Red Sea and they come and, and the end goal was for the promised land, but they were stuck in the wilderness, this, this barren place. And this was not what God intended for them at all. And, and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament, the, the writers and the stories, they, anytime there's this idea of like being in the wilderness or being barren, it's a place that God did not intend for us to be. And the prophets, they pick up on this theme in Isaiah 54. 
says, sing, barren woman. So this is something good's happening here to one who was barren. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy. You who were never in labor, labor because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. And so God enters our story. God enters the story of those who are barren. God enters our story. And this is, this is what God does with those areas of our lives that should be fruitful. I mean, God's desire uh, is not for, for barrenness. God's intent for us. I mean, he longs more than, than we long for a garden, for, for there to be something where it is barren. And, and so when the prophet writes this in Isaiah, Israel's not in a good place with God. They, ha- they have walked away from God. They have, they have gone after idols. They have, they have put God to the side, doing their own thing. And, and yet God tells them, hey, better get that band warmed up. It's, it's time to sing. I'm, I'm about to do something for you. I'm coming into those places of sorrow. And, and then further on in Isaiah 54, God says things like, don't be afraid. There will be no shame. Don't fear disgrace. No more humiliations. Forget the shame of your youth. And in other words, you don't have to worry about feeling inadequate any longer. And, and why is there no more shame? Why is our disgrace gone? It's not because of, of what we've done what we do to get out of that. It's because, well, Isaiah 54 verse five says, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. Verse 10, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken for my covenant of peace, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Verse 13, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. That the barren wilderness, that is not our destiny. That is not the end. That is not where the story ends. And, and during Advent, we look forward to the future when we are back within God's original plan, back within his original intent, a place of honor, a place of fruitfulness. And so, I mean, again, thinking about Elizabeth, Zechariah, they, were, they knew the, the prophets. They knew the story. They knew the, the story of their, their people and, and how God was, was, uh, was working and this, was moving along. But then they have their own longings. Like they have their own desire for this child and they feel it deep. It's a, a deep feeling in their, in their bones. And, and then God, God comes through for them. And the one who was barren is now with child. And here's, here's what I want you to, to know today is that God proves himself to be who he is, to be the God of Israel's hope by being the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer. God proves himself to be the God of Israel's hope by being the answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer. So the great, the great hope of Israel, what God is doing cosmically gets funneled down into their lives, into their own story. Now this couple, they, this was not a power couple. Like these, this, this was not, um, well, so first of all, the, the place in which they lived, Judea, the, the Jews that lived there, in, in the scheme of, of world matters at this time, they weren't that significant of a people. Like sure, they were a thorn in the side of Rome. From time to time, there'd be uprisings that have to be put down. But if you had to categorize people in like a who's who of the first century, uh, the Jews in Judea would be off to the side. Like nobody cares about 
Nobody, they, they weren't important. And then, and that group of people, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, of the group that nobody cares about and has no power, like they were just regular people. They were regular people. But God's story makes its way into their story. God's story makes its way into their story. And just as an aside, if, if scripture teaches us anything, it teaches us that God is firmly on the side of, of those without power, those, um, those who are weak, those who are, are seen as nobody, every single time. God is on the side of the weak. But that, so this leads us to an important question though. Which, which story is more important? God's story or your story? Like which, which story is more important? God's story or your story? And uh, I think there's a couple of ex- extremes here that we can get into when we're talking about which, which one is more important. For example, uh, on, on the one side, we can put our story over God's story in such a way that we think, you know, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'm going to get my life right with God. And then I can wield God to my desires. Like then I can, you know, basically God becomes a puppet for us. We are the, the puppet maker who, who manipulates God. So that, that's one extreme. On the other extreme is that we are just puppets in God's story. As if God is a child at Christmas who has received a train set and is playing with the train set and we are just pieces on the train set. And, and you know, the child gets to decide who's on the train, who's off the train. Uh, if it's one of my kids, probably who gets by the train. And, and we are, in that story, we are just pawns. Like we have no, we have no volition. We don't have any will and everything is determined by God. So you have these, these two extremes. And I think what we see in scripture is a much more intricate and complex relationship between God's story and our story. There's a book in the Old Testament called Ruth. And as you might have guessed, the main character in the book is also Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. The, the book actually could have probably been called Naomi because she features in this book just as much as, as Ruth. But the, the story starts with Naomi and her husband, Elimelech. They have two boys. And they're in Israel, and there's a famine in Israel. And so they, they go to a foreign land. They go to Moab. And, and the boys, they, they marry women there. And, but just in a short time, Elimelech dies. Uh, the two boys dies. And so Naomi is by herself with the daughter-in-laws. But she, she hears that back in Israel, that the famine is over. So she wants to go back to her people. She decides to go back. She goes back to her people. And Ruth, one of the daughters-in-law, decides to go with her. And it's, you know, Ruth says that great uh, quote that you've, you may have heard if you've been around church where, where Ruth says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And Ruth comes back with her. And when they come back, the people see Naomi and they greet her. And she says, no, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For God has, has taken everything. Because she went from a famine into Moab, where she basically becomes barren. She loses everything. When they come back, Ruth and Naomi are destitute. They, they don't have anything. Uh, they have no resources. They have no funds. There is no safety net in that culture. Uh, there, there was in, in the story. You read the whole story. But there wasn't anything provided by the, the government. Um, and, and they had nothing. And so Ruth had to go out 
after the harvesters had already come through the field, she would come behind and it was, it was dangerous because there was no protections and she put herself at risk for herself. And, and long story short, God intervenes on their behalf. God shows up and, and Ruth is married to Boaz, who is, happens to be a relative of Naomi. And, and this is how the book concludes. Again, that's a very brief, but you, you can read it, Ruth, um, in the Old Testament. But Ruth chapter four, verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Maybe he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. And all the women said, amen. If you, were, if you were here, I, I, mean, I, I can hear you shout. Uh, better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in, and in this, the grand story of what God was doing in the world, David would become king, king of Israel, not just any king. He became like the king, the prototype king. In fact, his life became a shadow of the future Messiah. The king that they're waiting for was going to come from David's line. And we know that a thousand years later, that Jesus was born into the family line of, of David from Naomi's family. And, and so we see what, which story is more important, God's story or our story? Here's, here's the answer. They are both the same story. Our story and God's story is one story. And the great hope of Israel and what God was doing in the universe, in the world, in redemption, funneled itself down into Elizabeth and Zechariah's story in the same way it funneled itself down into Naomi and Ruth's story. This great story of what God was doing found its way into their story as well. The promise to our first parents that God would deal with evil, that God would give a death blow to evil itself. The promise to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. This, this great story found its way into Naomi's story. And so the story of God is not a story that is out there somewhere. The story of God is a story that comes. It comes into our lives as well. And, and uh, God cares. What that means is God cares about your story. God cares about your story. He cares about your story so much that he sent his only son, the second person of the Trinity to come, God in the flesh, to live our life and to, to die our death because your story matters to God. Your story matters to God. The cosmic God became small. The big story becomes small in, in our story in the same way that God saw Naomi's brokenness barrenness, the same way uh, he saw Elizabeth's barrenness. He sees your barrenness, our, our pain, our brokenness, our hope, our longing, our waiting. It matters to God. What, which, what is more important, God's story or your story? They are the same story. They are the same story. And so what, what is it that, that is barren in your life? Like as, as we began this morning, there might've been something that comes to mind and you know better than me, because you, you've lived with it. You have, you have felt it. What is that place of fruitlessness in your life? And I, I want you to know that God, 
is not overlooking your story. You know, sometimes I think we, we think, you know, why would God care about my story when, you know, we, we got world hunger? Like, why, why does God care about my pain when he's got kings and presidents and elections and, and kingdoms to, to worry about? Why would he care about my pain? You know, God doesn't have time for me because he's got all these other things to take care of. And I'm just, I'm just a regular person in like, why, why does it matter? God, God doesn't have time for me because there's so much injustice in the world. Why would God have time for me? And I want to tell you that it doesn't work that way. That God is concerned about your story and God does care about you. And, and the relationship, maybe the relationship that you have with your father that won't work. Or the relationship with your father that you never had. That God cares about that. The, the childlessness that you're holding before God. God cares about that just as much as he cares about global poverty. The relationship with your child that you can't seem to put back together, God sees it. And the dream that you had for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, something that you, you felt that God had put down deep in your heart, it still hasn't come, come to pass. And I want you to know God knows your story. God cares about your story. It's not one or the other in God's story. And God is taking our stories and he's weaving them into his story. And our task is to let him have our story. Let him have our story. Our call is to remain faithful and not that our faithfulness matters the most. And then there's this, this tough balance. And, um, and it's not that we have to show God like how faithful we are. And then we're going to wield God's hand and God's power. I just, like, I just need to show God more faith. And then on the other hand, it doesn't mean that we do nothing and that um, what we do doesn't matter. And what Zechariah was doing, and I'm going to close with this. Uh, what, was, what was Zechariah doing when God showed up? What was he doing? He was just going about his normal business of living a faithful life in Israel. I mean, think about that. He was, he was chosen by Lot to go into the temple. The angel shows up and says, your prayer has been heard. Uh, somewhere at the intersection of our prayers and our volition and God's power and God's volition, there is, that is where we are called to live. Zechariah, he wasn't in the temple by choice that day. Like he, they had picked his name by, by Lot, um, but he was chosen and he did his part. He did his part. He, he followed through on his responsibility and then God showed up. He was fulfilling the task that God had for him. And while he was doing that, God stepped in and, and, and heard their prayer and heard their prayer and took away their disgrace, took away their shame. So our call, it's not on you. It's also not not on you. There's this, this tension here of our waiting, our longing for God, our hoping. And I want to I encourage you, whatever barrenness or dark place you find yourself in, like keep, keep being faithful. Keep serving. We live, we pray, we watch, we wait, and God comes through. Maybe not like we expect, but God comes through because your story matters to God. Your story matters matters to God. So what is that place of barrenness for you? Would you just close your eyes? 
and just offer it to God. The place where you were hoping, you have been longing, and still there, there's been nothing there. It feels empty. It feels like a void. It feels like God has not come through. Would you lift that up to Jesus? Jesus, thank you that you care about our story. You care about our lives enough to come, to live and to walk among us, to put on flesh and and bone and, and to live and to die. And today, Jesus, I pray that you would come into those broken places, those places that we have this deep longing, this deep desire, and we need you. We need you today to show up. We need your peace. We need your shalom. We need your strength so that we can remain faithful. Jesus, come. Breathe life into our dreams, into our hopes. Amen. Amen.